Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, avoiding exam prepping by getting back into Esperanto. <laughs> uh, I wish I remembered enough Esperanto to ask you a question right now. But unfortunately, the only, only Esperanto I still remember is Chuvi Volas, uh, which isn't that helpful of a question. Yeah, well, I'm also, unfortunately, avoiding my Esperanto learning uh, with more <laughs> procrastination. I've got layers. Right, right. Well, at least when you get to it, I was telling a coworker about it last night, and he sent me some like random line of Esperanto from Gerda Malparis, and I can actually still read it. So once you actually get over the uh, procrastination for Esperanto, you you won't forget it. Yeah, we'll tune in next month when we turn into a in in language Esperanto podcast. <laughs> Honestly, we could probably with a month's time we could become we could become an Esperanto language podcast. Probably. Anyway. I'm Cameron Lalana, <laughs> and uh, uh, this month, every month, I develop a new obsession, and I develop them in really annoying ways because I develop obsessions with things that I, I can probably not afford, so I don't. I just research it. So I'm getting back into VR stuff, which I've never owned a VR he uh, headset or setup of any sort. Um, I just research it a lot, and mm -hmm. I've gotten to the most annoying mode of VR, which is I'm planning out a, a form a, fa a form of a VR setup, which I, I am now saving up 2% from every paycheck. Because that's how long it's going to take me to, uh, well, all the technologies to actually come out. Because I'm only looking at uh, ones that are uh, <laughs> in like early announcement. So the most annoying form of getting into VR. Well, in, in 36 years, you're going to be unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> with my with my headset and haptic bodysuit, I will be absolutely <laughs> just a juggernaut of VR <laughs> VR content. But it's going to uh, be great. <laughs> well. This is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Today, we're going to be talking about part four, book four of War and Peace. Technically the end, if you don't consider, well, the hundred pages of epilogue that Tolstoy leaves us with. <laughs> and uh, after investing all this time reading War and Peace, you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of your reading. That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy, where we post a reading guide for each episode that includes quick commentary on major quotes and themes. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help the show out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. I promise we're going to use the email list again. <laughs> I promise. We've left it in here for like 80-something episodes, and I've only sent a few emails. <laughs> That's how good we are with our scripting. Uh, so and good. before we get yeah, before we get into the episode today, Matt, I got to ask, I know it's bright and early. What are you drinking? This episode is sponsored by coffee. Yes. Mm. It's warm. You love it. It's coffee. <laughs> uh, on my end, I'm being sponsored by Red Bull, which is not warm, but it could mm. be. Do you have wings? Do I? Well, we'll see. We'll see if it, well, I just drank it. So we'll see if they sprout over the course of the episode. Okay. I'll be sure to let you know. And okay. also Red Bull headquarters. Please do. <laughs> okay. So we're now at... Like Matt said, the end of War and Peace, if you don't count the 100 pages of epilogue, because, uh, well, it's Tolstoy, so of course he's giving us two epilogues. And um, I'm for me, the tagline for this part of the book, I know there's a lot of other important things to focus on, but my tagline for this part is, PTSD makes you a super cool dude. It really does. <laughs> Tolstoy said. Tolstoy, yeah. He really <laughs> was like... Are you really annoying and does everyone hate you? Have you considered uh, going on a death march? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we get into talking about what happens here, is there anything you want to cover? I am just glad to, you know, 
to be at the end so everyone can experience, you know, with us in real time, the feeling of finally getting to the end of War and Peace, but not being done. <laughs> and then Tolstoy slaps you with it again when you get to the first epilogue and he's like, no, one more. <laughs> well, at least when you get to the end, I think my immediate reaction was, wait, that's it? Yeah, I, yeah, it, it really does. <laughs> it does need the epilogue. I mean, it's not like, a, <laughs> you know, nobody pays attention to it. It's kind of, it, I, yeah, same feeling again. Yeah, it was, it was, I knew the epilogue was coming, so it wasn't that extreme, but it, it was similar to the end of Stalingrad where I was like, where um, I can't remember the, the commissar's name, but he steps off into Stalingrad for the first time in the entire book. And you're like, wait, <laughs> wait a minute. Just title drop Stalingrad at the very end of the book. Yeah. Same kind of feeling here. Yeah. Slightly mitigated by the epilogues, but still. Um, it's, it is it is so, I will say, so sudden, for those of you who have not read the end, that it literally trails off in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, at the same time, and I don't really know how you wrap up a book like this. So Yeah, that's true. Well, you do it by uh, mostly talking about General Kutuzov, who is, of course, the most popular character in this entire book. Right. Everybody loves him. Right. So, speaking of Kutuzov, let's talk about death. Um, so, <laughs> following, following Andre's death, Natasha and Princess Maria, um, it's, it's been a rough time for them, right? And they find some comfort in each other's presence because even though formerly they've had a pretty rocky relationship, at this point, there's something between them that it seems like only the other can understand. So, they start to grow and uh, form a very close bond. Like, they're, they're basically inseparable. Um, and eventually, uh, Maria needs to kind of get pulled back into normal life. She actually has an estate to take care of. She's got, you know, Andre's son, all this stuff. And um, so she decides to go back into normal life, making Natasha feel like she's all alone. And she kind of continues on in her grief, and she basically wastes away up until the news of, of her younger brother, Petsia, being shot and killed arrives and at that point, her, her mother falls into a deep depression, and Natasha is the only one who has the, I don't know if the strength is, strength is the right word, but she's the only one who kind of has the wherewithal to pull herself together and go to her mother's aid and basically takes care of her uh, for the next three weeks. I mean, really, I mean, it's the, for the material needs, mostly the servants, but Natasha takes care of her like spiritual needs and emotional and cares for her emotionally for the next three weeks. At the end of that, when her mother finally gets back on her own two legs to some degree, Natasha realizes that she is like in bad physical shape. She is like she's going very thin, walking up the stairs, like puts her out of breath, uh, which is I don't I'm not using that as a random example. That is basically what the book says. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> many times. Right. Yeah. So she's just like she's just out of shape. And Maria, who puts off for her going to to Moscow because of the news of Petya's death, um, takes care, starts to take care of Natasha after this, this initial three weeks, um, and they grow even closer. Um, and the only thing to note here is that they, even though they've go grown quite close, the one thing they, they never talk about, even though they spent all day talking about everything under the sun, is they never talk about Andre, they never talk about his death. Uh, they feel like talking about him will somehow, um, their words will be, will not reflect like the highness in their minds of what had happened there. And they will somehow fail to reflect the importance of it by saying it. Ironically, by not talking about it, it begins to kind of ease from their minds. This is a great scene. I thought the whole development of these two was so fascinating. It was a nice payoff for the book, but also I've got to say 
every once in a while, I know we make fun a lot of fun in Tulsa, but every once in a while I'll remember like, oh man, this is a writer who has an incredible ability to convey human emotions that are not complex, but are just things that I uh, don't tend to see reflected in fiction that often. And the idea of like talking about grief of losing someone and, you know, not wanting to talk about it or just like, oh, I feel like, you know, you and your friends, you don't want to bring it up because in some ways that's whatever the reason is. And then that own process kind of eases it from your mind over time. Yeah. Not an especially profound thing, but just something that I was like, oh, that's an, uh, that's very true to life. Um, some verisimilitude uh, in, in what he's conveying here. Yeah, he's able to capture things that kind of transcend just his own time that he's writing in, I think. Which, I mean, obvious, I guess. <laughs> why we still read him. Right. But not. But I think people tend to think of like the big idea Tolstoy, like, oh, let's talk about, let's see Levin talking to these landowners about what we should do with the serfs, not... Right, relatively right. tender emotions about grief definitely yeah but um so natasha is like so out of it like even her voice is failing her at this point so um maria like takes her to go to to moscow uh, because so, so they can uh, she can heal there a little bit from this point we go back to to Kutuzov's forces which are ch- chasing after the french and i think we've kind of covered this a lot previously so i won't go into it too much but tolstoy spends the next couple of chapters harping on how how much really most of the death here is just because not because of the battle just because the weather is bad he points out that after what is it like fifty thousand casualties uh, you know only three thousand of them are actually from battle the other ones are just people who died on the march and then reflects more so on how you know these many generals who are pushing for fights are looked at as the great glorious ones well you know kutuzov who held them back is seen as kind of a lazy you know, just someone who who was not up to the task to fight the French, even though what Tolstoy submits to you is that, well, he knew that the French were retreating and there's no reason to lose, you know, 50,000 more people to a war that was already won. But because he submitted to the laws of history and, and knew that he didn't have to, like, push, he's seen as kind of a dullard compared to the ones who push for fights that didn't need to happen, who are seen as great in some way, even though they had less of an effect on history than Kutuzov is, did. And Kutuzov had very little effect on history other than to submit to the, you know, the laws of man and, and going with that. Yeah, and not to mention the, fen- the French are already dying on their own, yeah. just running away. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, as, as Tolstoy mentions, even like taking the French prisoner, doesn't, it doesn't matter if they kill him or take them prisoner because, well, they're not going to survive anyway, even if they're, you know, the Russian army isn't actively trying to kill the, their prisoners, but they're dying anyway it's cold they don't have enough food it's they're just it, it doesn't really matter <laughs> right are they are they gonna die of cold running away from the army or are they gonna die of cold in the possession so to speak of the imperial russian army right um when they are getting close to some of these final battles Kutuzov also tells his men to recall that the french are people too uh, in, a, in a speech, which it's noted that few soldiers understood, but they kind of under uh, they they adopted the spirit, uh, the the uh, honesty of what he was trying to say, the the open heartedness. A few, not many. It should be mentioned. No, not <laughs> many, not many. Um, Hardly. Well, any. I think they all cut. Yeah, no one. Yeah, basically, no one understands. But they kind of like, oh yeah, he was being honest, even though he, he's standing in front of them, basically crying, like, hey, don't you know, have some pity for the French. Um, the next, over the next couple of parts, we just, this was, this was a weird one for the next three chapters. You basically just follow some troops settling in for camp at night yep, <laughs> and yep. the conversations they have and some 
French wandering out of the woods, and we have a little all quiet in the Western Front moment as the uh, the Imperial Russian forces give them food and vodka, and they all start to have a good time together, singing and drinking and laughing. So, uh, following that, as we mentioned, many people are pushing Kutuzov to do more, and he's holding the back. Uh, at this point, the Tsar and many other high-level members of the government are not happy with how this is going because they want more action. So they go to meet Kutuzov in, in Vilna, and they give him an award, and they hold a big ball. But everyone understands, despite these awards and honors, that he is. this is the end. This is He's, he's done. Uh, he's fallen short of the expectations, and now it's time for someone else to replace him. In this case, the Tsar takes over his, his role as a sort of way to not make it look like he, Kutuzov is being demoted, even though that's what's happening. It's, oh, well, time for me to take the reins. I'm the czar. You know, no one, no hard feelings. That's just what i got to do. But really, what he's doing is carefully removing Kutuzov from power. And Kutuzov following that, <laughs> um, I, in, in, um, of the many deaths in this book, which are very sudden, this is one of them. And I'm going to read the line in which Kutuzov dies in, because it's also... It's a little funny. It is. Nothing remained for the representative of the national war but to die. And Kutuzov died. <laughs> Nailed it. I honestly didn't believe he died. Right. <laughs> I had to read that like multiple times. To be fair, usually when someone dies in this book, it just happens between sentences and characters just start. <laughs> you know, there's like a, a gap of time. This one is right. the first time it's actually like Kutuzov died instead of people like, you know, he was, this character was dying and then you know, whatever, Mario was looking at Andre's body or whatever. Right, right. So following Kutuzov's death, uh, well, not following, chronologically we actually go a little bit before and we rejoin Pierre in Oriol, who is now no longer a prisoner on death march. As you might recall, he's been a prisoner of the French for quite some time after being taken in Moscow um, and was eventually put on a, sort of a death march. Um, not intentionally, but in effect. And the... Um, the forces of Dalachov and Denisov eventually free him. And so now after he is, he, he's recovering in Oriol from this, uh, from this experience. And little by little, he begins to hear news of what's happening, of the death of Prince Andre, uh, of um, Petya, the death of his wife, the destruction of the French. And despite all this death and destruction, he feels free. He feels for the first time, especially because now he's in sort of this town where he's got no responsibilities that, you know, this question of life, what do I do? What is the purpose of life that is he struggled with for his whole life uh, now disappears? It, what's the point? You, why do you need to ask that question? And you might be wondering, wait, isn't he he spent like 30 years just what, what to do with life? How did he find it? That's because he's found his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, um, which is the purpose of life, and you don't need to think about it beyond that. <laughs> so the question, what for, no longer exists for him, uh, because the, the question is, what for is answered? Uh, because there is a God, that God without whose will, not one hair falls from a man's head, is, uh, has solved him. And his demeanor as a result of this, finding the meaning of life, has changed, uh, such that people are now unironically before you know often they kind of put up with him as like oh that grumpy old man people are really fond of him uh his, his behavior has changed such that he no longer has a need to prove himself to the world so when he talks to people he really engages with them and really pulls them out of them he begins to see them for who they are uh not as kind of what they believe and begins to engage with that more and also doesn't take anyone too seriously he he doesn't feel a need to convince anyone of everything or of anything 
Um, and if someone says something contrary to what he believes, he just kind of smiles and, and asks more questions about it. That's actually um, kind of a good lesson from the book. Don't take yourself too seriously. That's actually a good <laughs> Tolstoy one to take away. No, this one, I want to go back, come back to this one more, because this one actually was super, super interesting in, in terms of um, his behavior. Because actually, yeah, no, it, you're, you're right. You're um, not that important. Uh, set your ego aside for just one second, you know. Also, as, as an accompaniment to this, he now feels much more confident in his decisions. And, uh, right, he's just before things that he struggled with. How do I make this decision? How do I know I'm right or wrong? No longer a problem. He just knows. He just gets guts feelings and he follows them and uh, they turn out to be right. And sometimes they turn out to be wrong, but that doesn't bother him. He just goes and makes a different decision then and he deals with the consequences. Pierre uh, returns to Moscow in order to rebuild his estate there, which burnt down when the city was destroyed. And we go to another chapter of <laughs> Tolstoy comparing the rebuilding of a Moscow to ants running around <laughs> a ruined ant hill. <laughs> Um, but he does say, you know, despite the destruction, the stagnation, if you look at an ant anthill, it may seem to have no sense in it, but if you keep watching, you'll see that there's something intangible that is allowing the calling to rebuild. And he says, despite the fact that Moscow, the city was gone an intangibility, um, you know, the real strength of the people still existed there and that was indestructible. Um, so comrade Tolstoy says the will of the people is indestructible. Uh, he read Stalingrad, I guess. The ants will rise again. <laughs> <laughs> so, and also, I think very funny. This is when I. This is a very funny part. Uh, as he's describing the city of Moscow coming back to life, he's kind of describing you know the bakeries open back up and these people return and all this. And after an entire paragraph of all these things happening, he ends on and Count Rostopchin wrote proclamations. <laughs> <laughs> so life is truly going back to normal. So Pierre returns to Moscow and uh, is beginning to take care of his estate. And he hears eventually that Maria, Princess Maria, is in town. So he goes to see her to pay his respects and also to find out more about Andre's death. And once he, he approaches her in her house, he greets her and she says, uh, hey, what, didn't you notice? And he says, notice who? Your attendant? And she's like, you don't recognize her? And he looks over and he realizes, wait a minute, this is Natasha. And he didn't fail to recognize her because there's just something different about her. Um, now it was She's gone. She's had physical changes, growing thin and pale. Uh, but there's just something deeper in her soul that makes her unrecognizable. Uh, but over the course of the conversation, as they talk more and Natasha begins to warm up, uh, that sort of unfamiliarity just fades away. And he that sort of internal sense of life returns a little bit. Uh, and um, well, she's also not like 15. Yeah, that was going to be <laughs> I didn't know how to lean into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, yeah, like this teenager that he was uh, once infatuated with is I don't I don't know her exact age. I don't think a teenager anymore. I guess probably like 18 or 19, maybe. I'd have to go back and do the math. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, you really lose lose the thread of the ages. It's not really that important, but it, just, yeah. it did it, make me it, chuckle a little bit here. <laughs> hey, there's no longer... Technically, it's no longer a child marriage plot. So, hey, that's... that's <laughs> it's a very low bar, but... It's not a child marriage plot anymore, but it still is probably a concerning age gap plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah um that's a broader tolstoy thing so they they talk late into the night and pierre comes back over over the next few days and often staying to the point where maria is like pierre i like you but please get the fuck out of my house <laughs> um and eventually pierre uh, has to go to petersburg to take care of some business and the last day before he goes uh, he's like hey maria you know i'm in love with natasha and she's like yeah i i figured uh, look, she likes you too. Just let, leave it to me. I'll take care of it. 
uh, just write her parents or whatever. And so uh, Peter, uh, you know, takes off and goes to Petersburg and is just on cloud nine out there. No longer any of the problems he had in the courtship of Helena, no longer there, partially because he appears to not write ever, <laughs> just <laughs> just thinking good thoughts. Uh, so it is easy to avoid pitfalls in a relationship when you simply do not engage in that relationship whatsoever. But hey, that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we end part four, book four, that very evening that Pierre leaves for Petersburg with Maria going to tell Natasha, uh, like, hey, he he's really into you. And Natasha's overjoyed and Maria's like, Wow, my brother is not even is like not even cold in the ground yet. But okay, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the part ends, and she tells Maria tells Natasha that Pierre's taken off from Petersburg for a while. And the book before prior to the epilogue ends in this line. But why go to Peter? Natasha suddenly asked and hastily replied to her own question. But no, no, he must. Yes, Maria, he must. Dot dot dot. And that technically is how War and Peace ends. Technically. Technically. The main action, if you will. Right, yeah. And before all the, the 100 pages of uh, epilogue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember, though, the epilogue just mostly deals with, like, uh, history. That was... I read a little bit into it. Yeah, that's that's uh, so far all I've gotten. Although, I, I guess the first chapter of every part of this book is just history, so... I don't actually remember if it returns to the characters. Uh, so I, I'll need to uh, refresh my memory on that. Right. Well, you can come along with us for that journey as to whether or not this is... <laughs> whether or not whether you'll or not the... uh, be reintroduced to the beloved characters you spent 1,300 pages with. <laughs> Only for Tolstoy to be like, I really wanted to talk about history. <laughs> He's like, I was so tired of these characters. I was killing them left and right. I still had some more to write. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I was I just decided to end mid sentence and go to talk about history in the epilogue. Basically. Just man <laughs> things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that is the case, I mean it makes sense. It's really it's like as as he's spent this whole book harping on, it's not about the individual story so much as like the the human clock of everyone of all these this complex relationship of everything keeps on moving regardless of our intent. So it doesn't really matter if we're there for the story or not, the story is gonna happen. Dalakov wasn't there and he went off to serve the Persian monarchy for a while and that would have been a cool book but hey that's just life that's not what this is about but it happened it would have been a cool book I don't know if I want to see it written or not. I feel like Tolstoy writing that would have been it would have been a part where we're like kind of white knuckling through like yeah this is a little dated in its depiction (laughs) it would have been one of those books that that scholars kind of just brush over and he wrote this during this period um Okay, so is there anywhere you want to start in particular in terms of, you know, the threads I'm here? I'm so interested in the ending. So interested. All right, let's start let's start from the back end. Um, so this is normally I think categorized as the last kind of major thing Tolstoy writes before going into full-fledged spiritual crisis. Right. And you can tell it's starting to happen here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. As I read this again, I was like, really? You think that, do you? Because it really, there are quite a lot of moments in here that I would categorize as spiritual crisis. <laughs> well, the part when we Christianity is is like a background feature, just like, you know, it's it's here. This Orthodox Christianity, belief in God, it's there. It, it exists. It's a big feature this time period. Going from that to, and anyway, he solved his quest for determining the meaning of life because he now believes in Jesus. Yes, uh, <laughs> I really must have missed that the first time I read it. I like don't remember that being so prevalent, but 
I digress. Right. I am interested because it, in relation to the spiritual crisis, it is also supposed to be the sort of last kind of interest Tolstoy has in traditional-ish family life. And this, from what I understand, this change is supposed to be seen between War and Peace and then to Anna Karenina, where you get a different depiction of family mm-hmm. life. Now, at the, at the end of Anna Karenina, I disagree with a lot of just general people who read Anna Karenina, which is, and if you haven't read it, spoiler alert for the ending, but it's been <laughs> out for, I don't know, like 200 years. You should have you know read it by now. Pause this podcast, go listen to our entire series of Anna Karenina, and then you can come back. <laughs> yeah, so at the end, right, you have this sort of Levin and, and Kitty unification where I, I don't think Levin's that happy. And there's this sort of argument that's been made. And I think actually Bob Blaisdell, who has been on our podcast, wrote this book, Creating Anna Karenina which argues that Tolstoy really wrote more of himself into Anna than he did into Levin. He takes the maybe biographical aspects of himself, puts them into Levin, but the true core of crisis that he feels is written into Anna. And I don't know, I see a little bit of this crisis too between between Natasha and Pierre at the ending, right? Pierre, he has this right great moral transformation in which he understands the world's secrets, and yet he still... fails to understand how his actions impact natasha and so has he really solved his core issue of understanding right how to love your neighbor and you know how to interact with them i don't know right does he really solve it i feel like it still leaves something unresolved in the way that anna karenina does i think it's um in the in the second to last chapter when he goes to petersburg and he's like oh everything's great there is one to i don't i think this supports what you're saying but there is there's this one line. That was the only doubt often troubling Pierre. He did not now make any plans. The happiness before him appeared so inconceivable that if only he could attain it, it would be the end of all things. Everything ended with that. And what he's talking about there is just like, oh, doesn't she know I'm just a man? How could she, you know, be interested in me? Which is like not like an exceptional doubt. That's a very normal thing to, I think, mm-hmm. uh, think getting into a relationship. But getting to, getting to your point of how much does he actually learn? How much... Um, He's set up to be this very now confident, everything's fine, right character. But some things, right? I mean, he's got his new characteristics, but there are some characteristics which maintain. And I'm not saying this is like a fatal flaw or anything, but that that inherent questioning of like, is this really what I want? It's it's still there. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's fully worked out or fully solved by this point. Right. But I mean, maybe that's supposed to be the point. I don't know. Right. Who am, I, who am I to judge? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that's kind of the interesting thing is that it doesn't, uh, as like, as a piece of narrative, we can engage with it in different directions and there is no definitive answer. And I don't, I don't know if there's, it needs to be one because whatever, how you, how you want to walk away from it is it's, it's open-ended enough in that regard that it could go, it could go either way depending on your reading, but also does it matter? Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. But I mean, but like, it doesn't matter in the sense that not like, oh, I, it's not worth talking about, but does it matter in the sense that, you know, I think the fact that it's open ended is its own is like a, is a, a neat piece of storytelling that it allows the story to be kind of like a living piece right, um, right. rather than its own, like a complete narrative, which is fine. It's not bad. It, I just it feeling having this feeling of open endedness it, it does contribute to like I to my to my view 
his view of humanity as like the big clock, which we can't control. Right, right. Yeah, it's given me a lot to think about on the ending here. And I feel like we should talk a little bit more about probably Pierre's overall spiritual crisis now that he's yeah. had a sort of conclusion to it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was going to say. So also, I will say, um, I can't, I don't like, I, I write down the exact quote. But yeah, when he's in no real recovering, he has like this, it's very, it's this slow return to, um, like being being a normal person i don't i don't think i wrote it down uh but <laughs> he, he's like every day he wakes up expecting to be like beaten by a guard or to go on a march and it's like takes a while for him to get back into normal normal life but it's this same process in remembering Karataev and taking on Karataev's like earnest earnest uh, love for god that makes him super cool dude which then leads me into saying um that ptsd just makes him makes him like a cool dude now he's got no more problems uh, not seriously, but <laughs> it is very much tied to Karataev's death, his change in the text. Yeah, there's a... So I was kind of, as I do, reading through or watching through uh, Zizek clips, as, mm-hmm. as uh, YouTube has as forced you me to do. And I was listening <laughs> to him talk about why he thinks people were happier under communism. Mm. And not simply because the state provided things for people, but uh, on the complete inverse in that there was shortage. And so Mm. the mere fact that there was shortage never allowed you to fully have what you want. And that sort of awareness that you don't have always what you want, he says, makes you uh, more appreciative or happier for the things that you do have, which isn't really that controversial of a Zizek opinion as far as... (laughs) His <laughs> and it's not even that original to him either right on the iceberg of zizek opinions that one's pretty pretty above water pretty normie <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's pretty normal and i think that that's it's very much in line with what tolstoy is kind of saying here because in his you know overlay of pierre the most unhappy moments for him are when he has the most mm-hmm when he is achieving the things that he thinks he wants to achieve, he is the most unhappy, which I think is still a pretty profound kind of psychological insight. Right. And right when he discovers meaning, it is because he <laughs> he lacks, right? So he has, it, it makes him, it's the only thing that can make him more aware of himself. Someone who just kind of bumbles about throughout most of the book without any sort of self-awareness. But so I have... A, a quote that I wanted to uh, do a Please. little dissection of along these lines. Well, let's if hear it. If you'll, okay. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, never, I didn't realize I needed to give permission. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> okay, you have it. You, you have my consent to go forward to this. Censor, I need the permission. Yeah. Um, <laughs> says, now, however, he had learned to see the great, the eternal, the infinite in everything. And therefore, in order to look at it, to enjoy his contemplation of it, he naturally discarded the telescope through which he had till then been gazing over the heads of Ben, and joyfully surveyed the ever-changing, eternally great, unfathomable, and infinite life around him. And this this does end, as you were uh, joking about, with the acceptance of Christ, and he, you know he goes into into that a little bit more. But it is interesting because this is again, I think, a good example of 
Gary Saul Morrison's idea of prosaics and kind of how Tolstoy philosophically sets it up, which is that you're not supposed to be looking at life through a telescope. You're not supposed to be looking at what is out there. You will be happier if you can understand, right, the importance, if you can see the infinite within these very small aspects of life. Hmm. Um, if you can see it within your fellow man, if you can see it within these, just these small actions that comprise the bulk of our days. Which I think for Pierre, most of his life isn't really spent doing anything because every, everything is taken care of for him. And so when he's forced to actually, you know, do things, it, you know, kind of gives him a different sort of set of, uh, it's different outlook, I guess you could say. And right. so this is kind of an interesting point that Morrison makes because I think it's profoundly secular in this sense. And it, it brings up an interesting <laughs> argument and I guess a little bit of the beef that the church has with Tolstoy, which is really right. Like is his conclusion really religious? I don't know because you, you know, if you think about like, right, both him and Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, mm. that one uh, around this time are doing their <laughs> own, right. You know, their own sure. revisings of the Bible where they are really kind of trying to parse out the, sort of just moral teachings without any of the miracles and obviously this church is not like this it does not right. work with orthodox christianity and so right the the moral teaching that he derives from christ like isn't necessarily a religious teaching which is what's very interesting about the conclusion to the book yeah it is to your point i think there's like really two main religious moments i would say there's like this moment and then there's when he says uh, yeah, morals aren't relative, right? Like they're set down by God, but also to your point, reviewing them, neither of them are particularly like religiously specific. <laughs> the idea that okay, there's there's like a there's a, a st certain standard of right and wrong, and you know the fact that there is an eternal God means that that that's like that's the reason for living, that's the reason for life, and you don't have to think too hard about it, you don't have to worry about the particulars because everything else will fall into place. It's you know God's will. To your point, that that's not. Like, I, I, I hadn't thought about it before, but there isn't a specific religious teaching there. And even to your point, the way he comes out of it then is like uh, treating people in and of themselves. Um, I mean, that is certainly a teaching you could derive from the Bible and from, you know, the various Jesus's parables, but it's not one of the main ones. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's not, like, yeah. not a big teaching you're going to get. You could like derive that for, as like a side point. Yeah, I don't know. It's also, I'm not sure how specific what he says is to Christianity either. No, yeah, it's, yeah, that's pretty general. <laughs> I would say general, just generally, like, vaguely religious. Right. It's like the level of religiosity you get from, like, a family member who goes to church, like, twice a year, and you're like, yeah, I believe in God. <laughs> and, yeah, I think that that's probably right. And then you, like, ask them for anything more particular, and they're like, I don't know, man, I haven't been to church since Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting point to make in which, right, it's a Christian novel, but I guess you really could make the argument that it has a, a lot of, like, secular understanding in it. Yeah. Which is not really, I don't know, it's peculiar, for sure. Right. I mean, it's it's very, like, it's, and maybe this is Tolstoy's relationship with religion more generally, that you're right, you like, the moments of state religion are and granted this is from a <laughs> long before and i think probably before the spiritual crisis really sets in you start getting more to this content but like the place of the church is more so like 
a piece of him making fun of various features of society. Uh, mm-hmm. When Natasha gets really religious, she starts going all out, all out praying. And actually, this is another interesting thing I, I, I hadn't thought about. But she's like very present. She starts judging how other people pray. And like the priest is, is up at the front being like, and God called down, you know, just death and destruction on our enemies. And she's like, hmm, I feel like this isn't, <laughs> I don't yeah. know about this. Um, it's a very, which I guess if you want to make the point that this actually does, this is a little religiously specific to Christianity, right? I mean, uh, one of the, like the main features of uh, Jesus's parables is a condemnation of people who are big and boisterous and present in their religion and an elevation of people who have quiet, private religion. Like, right. I, I forget. I don't, this is the publican and the Pharisee. Yeah, exactly. The Pharisee. Yeah. Right. Um, on, but you know, the people who are go home quietly and pray and, and don't make a big deal of it are elevated. So I guess you could make, like, you could make the argument. This is religiously specific in that he's trying to take these lessons from the Bible and being like, all right, church is bad, but private, you know, really pri- private belief is good. Yeah, it's. I would say it does draw on the early Orthodox tradition in like some ways, but it is Tolstoy's own perversion of it, for sure. Like the conclusion that he yields from it is just so different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and as we all know, the Orthodox Church does love reinterpreting their texts, so obviously they love this. I also, going back to him, the way he relates to people real quickly, I wanted to read out the paragraph, paragraph, the two sentences that really struck him the most about his change, Mm -hmm. which are, this was his acknowledgement of the impossibility of changing a man's convictions by words and his recognition of the possibility of everyone thinking, feeling, and seeing things from his own point of view. The legitimate peculiarity of each individual, which used to excite and irritate Pierre, now became a basis of sympathy, he felt, and interest he took in other people. The interest and sometimes complete contradiction between men's opinions and their lives and between one man and another pleased him and drew from him an amused and gentle smile. This was your favorite line? It was, I mean, this was my favorite, but this was the most interesting to me in that I think that in terms of relating to other people, um, I I thought it was an interesting line from Tolstoy to being like, I know we put a lot of energy into trying to figure people out, but if you just kind of accept that everyone's a little complicated and hey, yeah, they might be just completely inexplicable in a lot of ways and sometimes you just got to accept that and that will actually help you a lot a lot in life true to my own life and and uh that (laughs) i will say just kind of going along with this attitude not that i'm saying i'm that much like pierre but that's been very much my experience so hey it's it's universal i mean that's what avril levine said right (laughs) life sure is like this avril it sure is (laughs) I don't know if I had too much to add not to it beyond that, but just as we said kind of at the top, um, I think it is, I mean, like not the, not the, Tolstoy's not the only person who's ever made this point and probably not even the most popular person who's made this point, but just another getting, getting, getting into the various unexpectedly good psychological insights. He just throws that as a side point. Well, I think the, um, another part of this part that I liked a lot and that I thought was kind of previously unexplored was the effect of death. Hmm. Because there's this whole, I mean, major chunk of this part where uh, Natasha and Maria developed this sort of friendship that was previously, if you recall, not non-existent. <laughs> they <laughs> right. were like really unable to meet each other despite wanting to uh, just because of, I don't know, personal ego or you know, getting upset over very small things and the death of Andre is able to bring them together in a way that is 
unable to be expressed in words, more or less. And this even goes so far as to result in Natasha becoming estranged from her family. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, only able to be reconciled after the news of Pitch's death. So it shows the, I mean, extreme low, but also the reconciliatory power of death almost that, it, you know, it can have on the living. Mm. Which I think is a particularly profound point. Right. It almost, it kind of gets back into, I forget if we, this was a couple episodes ago, like the place of pain in um yes in war and peace that this sort of detachment that the, each death it's not pain specifically but these these death um the, i guess the pain was kind of like a relationship of a real of an individual to themselves but the death of someone else in their life is that sort of same detachment of someone from their life which then puts them onto takes away some agency and puts them on you know a slightly different course mm-hmm mm-hmm um yeah and also they i sorry i just i i love the way tolstoy describes how much their friendship is because it's like it's a strong friendship uh, is putting it lightly in terms of how he describes it yes from that day yes. a tender and passionate friendship such as exists only between women was established between princess maria and natasha together they felt more in harmony with one another than either of them felt with herself when alone a feeling stronger than friendship sprang up between them an exclusive feeling of life being possible only in each other's presence which I'm just going to say it, I know in maybe previous eras, intimacy between friends was a little more free-flowing. And I think that's probably a good thing, maybe something to return to. This feels a little bit more than <laughs> a description of friendship, but I don't I'm know if it, if it really is that, or if Tolstoy just, he's got like a little bit of a block when writing women friendships. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, he, he's uh, somehow uh, women have this elemental power of... Uh, certain feminine whatever that men can't have access to therefore they get access to a super former friendship yeah i i, I don't know if i i was gonna leave out that that part because i don't know if i totally agree with right that only women have this capacity for deep no, friendship that you know no no i disagree i think that's part of a, a broader like no sorry yeah i agree with you i don't i don't mean that uh, unironically i think this is part of a longer running kind of infantilization of women where they have like you know, men have big, you know, big thoughts. They were under about life and like women have this sort of gen- like it's it's made out like it's a good thing. Like, oh, they just understand things. They've got this. Yeah, uh, they just know things. They've got this sort of feminine understanding of the world and deeper connections, whatever. But it also is like it doesn't allow it, the this conception doesn't give them the ability to have the same ability to reason with men. They just have this sort of um, like I don't know really how to describe it, but just something separate that's like kind of meant to be like, oh, but this is separate, but it's a good thing, but it's not really. It's it's very infantilizing. And I think that <laughs> yeah. when Tolstoy yeah. has this block with him, and like, I think that may be where that is coming from. Yeah, I was going to pretend like I could, ex- I can, um, you know, extend that to men as well. Right, mm. The power that death has on everyone. Although, of course, in the text, he does, <laughs> he, I forgot, yeah, he does say, only women have this mysterious magical power. <laughs> <laughs> uh i do i do think it's interesting the way he describes um what he calls spiritual wounds a spiritual wound produced by a rending of the spiritual body is like a physical wound and strange it may seem just as a deep wound may heal and its edges join physical and spiritual wounds alike can heal completely only as the result of a vital force within uh which i think is in it and i mean an early look into um psychology but also I will say that he, I, I haven't mentioned this up to this point, Tolstoy is also getting a couple more licks in on doctors up to this point. So <laughs> you could say, <laughs> early stab at psychology. I could also say, 
he's also getting a few more into doctors. He does say that told that Pierre recovers despite his doctors. <laughs> so, well, medicine is an art, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the, the doctor slander never ends. No, it truly does. It the doc the doctor slander and historian slander is off the charts in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to War and Peace. We got all the things you're expecting. Doctor slander, historian slander, talking about the world historical clock, child marriage, more child marriage. It's the same person, child marriage. <laughs> and now they're no longer a child, but they're still really young and they're getting married. Yeah, right. The incest parts. I forgot about that. It feels yeah. so far yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the incest seems so long, so long ago. So long ago. <laughs> I, I've, I, explaining War and Peace has become, and I'm sure my coworkers hate this, has become one of my favorite things because War and Peace is a great book and it deserves its place in history. It's also such a funny book. <laughs> yes. I, I will say this is um, less specific to this part, but I, what, something I didn't expect to walk away from War and Peace is just that War and Peace, it can be a bit of a drag to read at times in the sense that it just feels long and because it is really long and it feels like it covers a lot of the same ground. But it's an unexpectedly just really fun book to read. Just like getting in, because, uh, sometimes because it's strange, sometimes because Tolstoy is, shows, you know, his deafness as a writer ex, uh, exploring character, the psychology of characters or insights into life. And sometimes just because it's strange or funny or intentionally or not. And that's been, it's... It, I, I like that part because I think like when you read like Pushkin, you know that he's generally being satirical and self-aware. Uh, but Tolstoy has these great moments of self-awareness in War and Peace, and then these absolutely mind-boggling moments of not being self-aware, um, in which you're like, oh, you do think that, don't you? <laughs> and those are just as funny sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, so I've been pitching War and Peace to, to everyone I meet, and I don't think any of them are going to read it, but... No, I, I don't think anyone's going to read this. I, I don't believe the people listening along are reading. I think they're bamboozling us. <laughs> <laughs> um but if you're not reading it you should it's just it's it's just a fun book and yeah it'll some parts do drag a little but if you push through i don't think you need to sell the audience on like part 12 <laughs> 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 yeah if you're here i don't know what to tell you um yeah. uh oh i do it's can we talk about Gattuzov's death for a second oh sure right um i'm i'm just it's interesting I mean, this is, again, this is just reflection of his view of people as, like, serving a historical purpose in that he he basically says, hey, Kutuzov was the right person, and I know everyone thinks that I'm wrong on this, but I think Kutuzov was the right person for the war in the Russian Empire's territories. Uh, and then the war moving from now no longer war west to east, now a war being from east to west, another leader was necessary with different qualities and different views to fight this different kind of war, and therefore... You know, Alexander the first was the right person to uh, take over this conflict, or at least was the ch at least a change in leadership was necessary because that was just not who Kutuzov was, as per the laws of history. And you know, Kutuzov didn't understand any of that, so he was merely representative of this war. And because that representative was no longer needed, he was put aside, and also he just died. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was There's nothing left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, like, nothing usually follows that logically, I feel like, in, in the book, but then, like, this one, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know, it was funny. It had it had a <laughs> sense of humor to it, I thought. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it does feel, I think, to the, if I could, I cannot see into Tolstoy's mind, but this does feel like a kind of a joke of, like, uh, of 
taking some of the idea of the people serving history to its extreme in that, yeah, Kutuzov, yes. he's put forward as like the prime example of someone who understands that he's subject to laws of history and therefore doesn't fight it. So when the laws of history decided to retire him, he just <laughs> peaced out <laughs> from right, life itself. Right. Is, I didn't think of it like that, but that is pretty funny. Um, I, I can't say that that's what Tolstoy intended, but <laughs> that's kind of how it comes off. Is, it is funny considering like how passive Kutuzov is for the whole novel. Right. <laughs> but, you know, as Tolstoy has you believe, like one of the best ones because everyone else was are just commanders looking for glory uh when all they're doing is just sending their men to death and despite the fact that they're doing nothing but killing people by accident their own people by accident they're held up as the great and interesting ones and katuzov who seeks to keep people alive is seen as a dullard <laughs> yeah almost the enemy at times right yeah they yeah they, they you know they rumors are passed about him, about him being in league with napoleon and all all that yeah, and also the, I think it's interesting that he does engage with also like, hey, because he, I think Tolstoy's language in the book sometimes edges close to, I don't know if nationalistic is the right word, but you know, it it, it is like someone who is like a proud enough of their country, not you know a jingoist, but someone who's like, yeah, this is why we've earned this right, you know, as the Russian Empire, to talk about it in this way. But I think it's also interesting that he never he like has Kutuzov in, in, you know, entreat the soldiers to remember that the French are, are people and to treat them like they are, you know, they're worse off than our poorest beggars, you know, mm. well, they were strong. We, we, you know, we didn't spare ourselves, but now, you know, they're human beings too. So we should pity them. And which is followed by, right. Some, um, French soldiers approaching some, some, uh, Imperial Russian soldiers sitting around a fire and they share some vodka and start swinging, uh, singing. And, uh, you know, they realize, Oh, they're, they're guys too. And, um, and I, I, this is how that, that part ends, which I just, I thought was a beautiful piece of writing. They all grew silent. The stars, as if knowing that no one was looking at them, began to disport themselves in the dark sky. Now flaring up, now vanishing, now trembling, they were busy whispering something gladsome and mysterious to each other. Which is like a, one of the few, one of the few moments of just, of just genuine serenity in this yeah. book, which I, yeah, I thought it was does. interesting. It, you know, it doesn't end with, right, I guess the interesting part is that it does not end with this great triumphant military victory mm-hmm. it's as implied right it's well it's not really triumphant i wouldn't say like yeah your capital's <laughs> raised to the ground <laughs> many yeah. people have died most of our characters have died <laughs> and then the military part of this book ends i mean i know there's like the the technicals of replacing a Kutuza, but i think i count that as separate from like yeah. just yeah, the yeah. general war parts the general report just ends on soldiers quietly drinking and sitting together i think there's um i I don't know it's just it's a nice way to cap it off a very human very tolstoyan approach (laughs) to conveying that right yes you find you find the human in the enemy ultimately right and everyone's drunk and everyone's and everyone's drinking Mm -hmm. and that's a nice spot to end yeah i think so too well until the epilogues but we'll we'll get there (laughs) right um so if you get some time Go outside, have a drink, alcoholic or not, and look up at the stars, I guess. No, you're not supposed to because the stars aren't, they're not supposed oh, to, that's no right. one's looking at the God, I can't, Shit. come on. Damn it, <laughs> fuck. Don't look at the Fucked stars. Fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we totally wrap up, Matt, on a scale of, well, one of Yeltsin doesn't apply here, but on a scale of uh, someone that's very caffeinated, 
Um, oh, <laughs> is it Immanuel Kant that drank a lot of coffee? I'll correct it. I think Immanuel Kant drank a lot of coffee. On a scale of one to, I know he's not at all related to Russian literature, but that's the first thing that came to mind. On a scale of one to Immanuel Kant, how caffeinated are you? Seven, I suppose. Pretty caffeinated. Feeling pretty alert. Feeling pretty good. Just about finishing the series. Hell yeah. We're... How about how about you over there? You get your wings. I'm a, I'm a good I'm a good six. I'm not not quite wings, but you know I'm awake considering that I got home at like you know 1:30 in the morning last night. Ooh, and beautiful. It's 9 a.m. now. Oh yeah. Feeling pretty good. Oh yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> That's good stuff. I would ask what we're reading next episode, but we keep alluding to it. Next time we're going to be covering the epilogues. Both. We're going to do them separately, and we decided not to. <laughs> we decided not to for reasons that were our own choice and not at all related to scheduling. Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Brenda, Nell Nell Cool J, Christina, Marin, JG, Banana Karenina, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Allison, Brandon, Adini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the podcast running at the rate it does now, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. 